someone who uh, came highly recommended by a professor of mine, Bruce Boulogne, who taught this morning, and he taught through Exodus chapter 2. And since we favor the evening crowd, we're going to give you Exodus 1. So we threw off the morning crowd, and so you're going to start off with the beginning. But you can show up to both services, and you're going to get, hopefully, a really clear glimpse of the book of Exodus. Not cover every single nuance of it, but if you come for the next seven sessions or seven sermons, you're going to get a pretty good kind of snapshot of the book of Exodus. And so this is going to be the second part of the series. It's going to be an eight-part series for the book of Exodus for the month of July. Please welcome Miguel Arseniega. Let me open up with prayer, and um, we'll dive into what we're going to talk about. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the world uh, that you have. I thank you for regeneration. I thank you for the church and the work that you are doing here um, through, the, through your servants. Lord, I pray for tonight's word. I pray for the message that we are going to deliver together uh, with your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'll give you a little background, a little information. Dr. Boulogne, who spoke this morning, was also one of my professors at Azusa Pacific long ago. And at one point what happened is this, is I was pastoring a small church, actually right near the church where uh, down the street, probably less than a mile, Albert and I just discovered. Um, we grew up in churches uh, less than a mile from each other in the city of Duarte in Southern California. And, um, and now we're here and we're meeting each other. Uh, but eventually, uh, when I was pastoring some churches down there, uh, Dr. Bloin just asked me, he said, you know, if you'd consider teaching uh, at a specific, and he asked me for a couple years. And finally, I thought, you know what, I think I'll, I'll, think I'll give, this a, give this a go. So I did. Uh, but so what I teach primarily, and Albert, I guess you took Exodus Deuteronomy uh, from Dr. Bloin? No, okay. Um, but the class that I teach, uh, I only teach one class there, and it's Exodus Deuteronomy. And so the Torah is what I teach, uh, and, um, and I love it. I teach all incoming students um, that class, and it's primarily freshmen. And there's usually uh, some questions that I go through with them or um, conceptual ideas or concepts. And one of the things I usually say to them is this. I tell them that usually within three or four class sessions, uh, you're going to get angry with me. Some of, some of you perhaps want to become violently angry or will become violently angry with me or want to uh, because of some of the things they're going to say. I tend to push the envelope, but it sounds like so does Albert, so I think we're in good shape. And um, so... Uh, we're going to dive into these things, and I'm going to speak for the next few weeks on these Sunday evenings, and so it's going to be one message is going to bridge to the next and to the next to the next and to the next, and so the envelope is going to be pushed a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until I, the final Sunday night that I, I teach here, okay? So, but let's, uh, let's go through some things. I think I have about... All right, um, I'm going to go through some slides, and I hope this works. It does. Uh, three conceptual uh, concepts or ideas that I want to look at here, and I'll read these here. First of all, concept number one. We have largely arrived at a point in the church where instead of asking, what does the Bible say about God, we ask, what does the Bible say about me? And it's what we've become. And I've seen this, and, and the reason I say this, that it's what we've done in the church, is because this is what I see students talking about. In other words, we read the Bible, we quickly, and we, do, we should jump to the application part, but we read the Bible, and what we say is this. We read it, and we say, what is your name? Sean. Sean. We read it, and Sean says, okay, this is great, but where am I in this? And it's, it's largely, I won't say it, 
Sean, you're narcissistic, you're not. Um, you're American, right? We're Americans. And it's not just that, it's humanity. But this is what we tend to do. We read the text, and it's not your fault, and, and it's not Albert's fault, it's not Regeneration's fault, it's all those other churches. Uh, but it's, it's, it's quite a few of the churches that are doing this. Even some of our, well, I won't say mega churches, but I'll say mega churches. But some of our other brothers and sisters in the faith. So we do this. We ask, what does the Bible say about me? Next, concept number two. I believe the question we should always begin with when studying the Bible is this. What does the text say about God? That's where we should start. Then we can enter the picture the better we understand God in any passage we read or study, the greater the capacity in finding our role regarding God's Word. And I think it's true. And I'm not saying that we necessarily do it maliciously or when we read the Bible, but when we do this, the one before, when we ask what the Bible says about me, we're trained to do that in the church, it seems today. So I'd say this, what does the text say about God? And not just what does it say about God, but I think what we have to ask is this, what does it say about God's character, okay? Next, we go to the third one. And if you want, if you have your Bibles with you or your, your smartphones or your, well, smartphones, um, or your Bibles, a few Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11, so I just want to give you a heads up there. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Sean? There he is, Numbers. Sean's on it. Uh, Numbers chapter 5. We're going to read something, but let me read this number 3 for us. The Bible is not written to us. The Bible was written to be clearly understood by its contemporary audience, but it is written for us. Sean, this is another issue we have, okay? In other words, Sean, we do this. We look at the Bible and we read it and we say again, what does it say about Sean or what does it say about me? But then we also think the Bible was written this morning and it just wasn't. It was written to be understood by the people it was written to and for. Okay, 1 Corinthians, Sean was written to who? The Corinthians. He said it actually. Uh, it was in his stomach and it was coming up or in his heart, and it was coming up. It was written to the Corinthians, okay? But those letters, both First and Second Corinthians, were written for us to use in our faith, but they weren't written to us. And this is an important concept to understand, because I think some of us, we come from this perspective that the Bible was just written this week, and it was written especially for us in 2013. Well, I'm going to show you something that is well, rather shocking in Numbers chapter 5, and we're going to start again. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I think you have the English Standard Version, but they're pretty similar. So let me start reading here. Verse 11 of chapter 5 in Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If any man's wife has gone astray and is unfaithful to him, if a man has had intercourse with her, but it is hidden from her husband, so that she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes on him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if, and by the way, you're going to see these ifs pile up. If a spirit of jealousy comes on him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, verse 15, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest 
and he shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So let me explain this real quick. What's happening is this. You're married, especially if you're a man back then, okay, thousands of years ago, and you suspect that your wife has committed adultery. Instead of going to the courts, you go to their courts. Instead of going to an attorney, you go to their attorney, and their attorneys are these priests. So they go to the priest, and they talk to the priest. And they say, you go to the priest, and this, the men say this, this is what I suspect my wife of doing. And then we get into this process of how you find out whether or not your wife has committed what? Adultery. Let me start reading verse 16. Then the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. Now, this is terrifying. It should be terrifying. When we read that, it says the priest shall do what, Sean? Bring her near and set her before the Lord. Bring her near and set her before the Lord. Now, we read that and we think, oh, this is beautiful. He's, she's going to beware. And Bianca, wouldn't you want to be before the Lord? Always. Not in this situation of adultery, but Correct. absolute. But all of us would want to be right there near the Lord. You all, this is terrifying. This is terrifying. Because you remember, at this point, where does God live? God isn't up in heaven. Yes, in the tabernacle, right? So when they bring them, when the priest brings her before the Lord, we're not talking just a spiritual idea of God. We're talking what? We're talking the literal physical idea of God. Um, when I was a kid, and I grew up Catholic, and some of you grew up Catholic, I'm sure, right? In the Catholic faith, there are steps to the Catholic faith. Presbyterian Church to Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, there are these steps that you take. One of those steps is, you know, there's baptism when you're born, and then there's First Holy Communion, and then there's confirmation. Before you're confirmed, though, you are supposed to go to confession. And it was a church that looked similar to this, this Catholic church I grew up with. It was maybe about two, two or three times the size of this. But on the sides here were these confessional booths. And I remember going to catechism school, and then right after that, it was the last catechism school of that week, and then we were supposed to go, and then that Saturday, we were all together going to have, take our first Holy Communion as young Catholic Christians. But before you do that, you're supposed to, well, go to confession. Sean, who did I think I was going to talk to? Bianca? God, absolutely. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to go into this confession and tell God about my what? About my sins. That just wasn't going to happen. And so I didn't go. And so there are a couple hundred students that went to confession that day. I was the only person that didn't go. And that was on a Wednesday, I remember. And my older sister, she's the oldest, thank goodness, and just like a lot of older uh, siblings, they like when things are in order within everything. In families, I mean, you know, you have that birth order thing that goes through. Well, it's Friday night, she gets home from work, and she asked me, oh, by the way, tomorrow's your big day, are you excited? And I said, yes. She said, how did confession go? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't want to lie to her, but I had to just tell her, look, I, I didn't go. She grabs my hand, and right away what we do is we walk out the door. She doesn't throw me in the car, but she puts me in her car, and we drive to the church. And you have to remember, Catholic priests, they live at the church. 
And so it's a Friday evening around 5.30, 5.45, my, my sister knocks on the door, and this person answers it, it's this woman who's preparing the meals there, and she says, I'm sorry, but I need to talk to, to, to pastor or a priest, you know, a father such and such. And then he shows up, and he says, Michael or Miguel didn't go to confession. And I remember he was Irish. He says, oh, golly me. <laughs> so right away, he takes me to confession. I go to confession. And, by, and the whole way there, um, how many of you grew up Catholic? Okay, so you know your prayers still probably, right? Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, all these prayers, right? Um, the whole way there, all I'm doing is what? <laughs> is not just praying, practicing my prayers. Because I do know that for every certain, for depending on the sin, it took that many prayers to erase that sin. So let's go back to the text. The text says this. Let me start in verse 16. The, poor, the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. Frightening. The priest shall take the holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall set the woman before what? The Lord. Dishevel her hair, or the woman's hair, and place in her hands a grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. Now, what they're making, and I'll just tell you right now, it's a potion. Now, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's a potion. This last semester, I had one student, the more we read through some of this stuff, she said, there's a lot of Harry Potter in the Bible, isn't there? <laughs> well, let me keep reading. In his own hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, Verse 21, let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you what? An execration and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your uterus drop, your womb discharge. 22, now may this water that brings the curse enter your bowels and make your womb discharge, your uterus drop. And the woman, by the way, shall say what? Amen, amen. This text was not written to regeneration this morning, July 7th, 2013. It was written to be understood by who, Sean? It's contemporary audience. Because, are you married? No, okay, you will be tomorrow. So, um, what I'm saying is this. We look at this text and we think, how can I find the gospel here? We preach a gospel as if it's simple. It's not simple. I mean, look at this text for goodness sake. And I can't, and you, we can't just sit back and say, oh, you know what? This is the Old Testament. Trust me, there's plenty in the New also. Some of you are sitting there right now thinking, I don't understand this text. I wish I could raise my hand and ask a question. I think I know some of the questions you would ask. It works this way, and I don't know how this drink works, but if she has committed adultery, her womb drops and her uterus, I mean, 
Can she have children anymore? And then this is the frightening part. If she's pregnant, what happens to the child? She loses it. And this is, if you want to push it even more, and this is where we get into it in my classes. Before this, what I usually do is this. I ask the class and I ask everybody to come up with a definition for what is a miscarriage and what is an abortion. There are a great deal of you who are reading this for the first time. And we can say that a miscarriage is what? It's an accident. It's an accident, right? It's not something, but an abortion is something different. And I don't, I don't want to get in, in, into that necessarily, but you can see the ramifications of this text. It's not easy. But the people who read this at the time, they understood this. And this was a process back then that they would go through. How terrifying must that be? How terrifying must that be? Let me keep going. Our postmodern world. Postmodernism literally means after the modernist movement. What or when was modernism? Get there here. Describes an array of cultural movements rooted in the changes in Western society in the late 19th, 1880s, and early 20th century, early 1900s. The term covers a series of reforming movements in art, architecture, music, literature, and applied arts, which emerged during this period. Modernism could be described as the experimentation and fragmentation of the human experience characterized by deviations from norms in society. Let me keep going. It is a trend of thought affirming the power of human beings to create, improve, and reshape their environment with the aid of scientific knowledge, technology, practical experimentation, or critical thinking. Let me keep going. Modernist figures. This is John. Albert Einstein. John got it right. Uh, the picture helps. Albert Einstein. Uh, theory of relativity. Uh, which is this, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times speed, the speed of light um, squared, right? The other person, anybody? Sigmund Freud, right? We have Sigmund Freud here. Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939, uh, founded the psychoanalytic school of psychology, psychoanalysis, study the mind and behavior. I mean, he asked the question, he asked these questions. He said, you know what? I'm watching this family, and it's a family of five children all with the same parents, and yet all five of them what? Say it. They're different. And so he said, how in the world could five kids, all raised by the same parents, be so different? And then we went, we went from there. I bring these two up because these two, these two individuals, Einstein especially, he used to actually sell out Yankee Stadium when he spoke. Sell out Yankee Stadium. Now the only two people who can sell at Yankee Stadium are, well, the Yankees and Justin Bieber. That's where we are. That's why we're in a postmodern world. Let's keep going. You get by Freud, and this is who? It's Pablo Picasso, right? So Pablo Picasso is another one. Oh, that's working. Okay, 1881 to 1973, Spanish painter, draftsman, sculptor. Uh, this is one of his paintings. If you, you actually have to critically or study the painting, right? Do you see the face? And you see the hands, right? So we have the face here, and then we have the hands here. Okay, but you have to actually study the painting, right? Because he's a, he was a modernist. He wasn't postmodern. Let me keep going. Modernist figures again, Jackson Pollock. 
There, he's, there he is at work. And then let me jump to realism. Now, realism is, well, it's like reality TV. There's really not much thought to it. It's really simple, right? It just is what it is. What you see is what you get, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Looking at this painting, and it is a beautiful painting. I surely couldn't paint it. If I were to ask you what century this is, what century do you think it is? And you have to look for clues. This clue right here might help you. It? Yeah, it's, it's like the Wells Fargo stagecoach. So 19th century, right? 1800s or so? Right? We could narrow it down, right? We can look at that. We can study it. Well, and then there's another one. Then there's this one. And this, again, is Pablo Picasso. Um, there's quite a difference between realism and what Pablo did. But let me give you some background on Mr. Pablo Picasso, okay? He loved women. He loved women, okay? And he enjoyed women. He had a lot of women. But the thing about him was this. He would find a woman that he was dating. They would usually move into his home. And at his home is where he had his art studio. The way that these women that were living with him or dating him at the time, how do you think they found out that he was dating somebody else? Correct. He painted them. So all these women had to do was step into his art studio, and if there were other paintings, and he would usually try to, find, try to hide them, but if there were other paintings, they knew that he was dating somebody else and that they were not the exclusive woman or person with Pablo Picasso. This painting is one of many. He dated a woman called Dora Maar, and this is Dora Maar. At this point, Dora Maar has found out that Picasso is now, he now loves somebody else more than Dora Maar. So I'm going to ask Bianca to come up here. She's going to strum a little bit. She's going to play a little bit. But what I want you to do with the people sitting next to you, I want you to look at this painting, and I want you to come up with just one-word descriptions or just little sentences. Tell me, after, since you know at this point she knows that Pablo Picasso is now with another, the, the man that she loves is committing adultery, and this is what he paints about her. Study the painting. Tell me what she's experiencing. Look at colors. Look at all the details. And then we'll come back together in a couple of minutes. Okay? So go ahead and do that. Okay, um, I'm going to step down here now, get a little closer to you. Um, any idea? Any thoughts? Anything? What are you thinking? Uh, What's your name? Natalia. Natalia. Uh, she's green, so it's kind of like that sick feeling, probably. Yeah, she's green. Sick feeling or what? Jealousy. jealousy. There it is. Envy. Jealousy. And how deep does the jealousy and envy run? Say it. Somebody said it. It's in what? It's in her hair. Did you say it back there? What's your name? Stefan said it. Stefan said it's in her hair. 
Britney Spears is an interesting person. Okay. Um, do you remember, I think it was four years ago, maybe five years ago, maybe longer, maybe not as long. Remember when she shaved her head? Um, I usually share this because I go through this with my students. Do you remember why she shaved her head? Um, I love the work that regeneration does here because you deal with people um, and most of us it, families, um, at least 70% of families around the world, around America, have either a family member, a friend, or someone that is struggling with addiction, right? At that time, Britney Spears was in a battle for her kids. And so what she did is she shaved her head. Because if some of you, some of you might know this, that when you do drug tests, one of the best drug tests you can do is with the hair follicle. Because if you were to do drugs today, and I'm not sure if it's all drugs, but most drugs, it ends up in your hair, in your hair follicles. Mine are gone, so I don't have to worry about it. But it ends up in your hair follicles. And so what Britney Spears did, she wanted to make sure they didn't what? They, yeah, they didn't want to have the ability to cut off a piece of her hair, and it was long at that time, to see. And what you can do is you can even, they could even see how long ago she had been taking drugs, how far it goes back. So when you look at this and you look at poor Doromar, it didn't just start, I mean, look how long it is. She has been feeling this jealousy that long. Not only that, we can also look at this, and these are hooks. Her pain, her jealousy, her suffering is so great, it's as if there are hooks on her eyelids here, and they're actually opening up her eyes because there are so many tears that in order for the tears to actually flow out, she has to open up her eyelid. That's how much pain she's in. So again, this is a modernist picture, unlike this one. This is simple. But then you get here, and you really have to study it. The other thing you have to look at this painting is this. Where is she? If you look behind her, there's a shadow. Is she in a corner? Is she in a box? Or is she in a coffin? She's really struggling, and there's a lot of pain. Let me keep going. Ancient Near East. We're going to jump to geography now. I want you to have some information of where this is. And um, there are some non sequiturs here, but we're getting there. Uh, this is the world. Eventually, this is the area that we're going to talk about, uh, the Middle East. Let me keep going. This is called the Fertile Crescent. Okay, Albert learned it in his Exodus Deuteronomy class at Azusa Pacific. But this is the Fertile Crescent, right? Right here, we have the Tigris and you have the Euphrates. And this is green because it's where the water is. Right here, you have the Nile River, you have the Nile Delta. This is where Israel is. Right here is all desert. They didn't have to worry about that area because nobody could cross there. The two powers at the time are these. You have Babylon here or Mesopotamia. This is Persia, which is Iran. You have the Tigris, you have the Euphrates, here's Israel, Egypt, Mediterranean, Asia Minor, which is Turkey. Okay? So these are the areas we're looking at when we get into Exodus. Let's jump a little more. The Garden Rivers. When I look at this again, you have the Tigris and Euphrates. Okay? So let's look at this, the Garden Rivers. I'm going to read the last verse. Okay? This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, but I'm going to read just the last verse, 14. The name of the third river is, the Ti is Tigris which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The other two are these two, the Bishan and the Havilah, okay? This is where the Garden of Eden was located. 
Okay? The only two rivers that we know that are still in existence are the Tigris and Euphrates. Those other two, we have no idea where they are. And we don't know what happened to them. But the Tigris and Euphrates still exist. So again, there they are, Tigris, Euphrates. So and then what I want to do is look at a modern day map. If we look at a modern day map, it's Iraq. Garden of Eden in Iraq. That's where it was formed. We're not sure what happened to the Garden of Eden because shortly thereafter, well, a flood occurred that flooded the whole world. And so we're not sure if it was protected or what happened. Let me keep going. Gods of Egypt. Now this is going to be important for us. I'm going to fly through these slides because it's important to understand the amount of gods Egypt worshipped. And they just kept adding gods, kept adding gods, kept adding gods, kept adding gods. I'm going to fly through these. Start with A. There's Aiken, Aker, Aim. But let me just keep going. There's that one, that one, this one, this one, this one, this one. And we're just at the ends, so we're halfway through. Here we go. It's more. Sobek, the crocodile god, is going to come up shortly. There's more. And finally, we're done. It's a lot of gods. This is going to come up next week. And it's going to come up today, but it's especially going to come up next week. Jump to Exodus, please, uh, chapter 1. And we are, we are not going to speed read. And actually, I don't mind if we don't finish, because um, if Albert likes what I said today, I think I'm going to be back next week. Um, so um, let me start in verse 1. Let me start in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Make sure we're all there. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of who? Of Israel. I'm not going to go through these names. I can't pronounce half of them, so I'm just going to move on to verse 6. I'm just kidding. Um, usually when you have a genealogy like this, what this largely does is this. It's a break in the story. It tells you that a new narrative, a new story is coming up. Okay? Verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and sisters in a whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and what? Prolific. Okay? And that was one of God's commands. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous, and this is important, because we miss this every single time. It says the Israelite people, Natalia, were more numerous than what? And were stronger than we are. Or in your ESV, I think it says mighty. In the new, new Revised Standard, it says more powerful. That's a bold statement. They aren't just more numerous, they're more powerful. They are more powerful than the Egyptians. We usually jump to the slavery part and the oppressed part, right? But we forget that they're actually more in number and they're more powerful than Egypt. So what happened? Let me read. Then we, verse 10, come let us deal what? And that's the key. Let us deal shrewdly with them, conniving. Somehow they, come, they had to come up with something. The problem is, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what they did. It tells us that, yes, they oppressed them with forced labor and did these things, but it doesn't tell us how they overpowered them. It just doesn't tell us that. Next week, I'll take you to a text that's going to, well, illustrate this point. Let me keep going. Verse 11. I'm sorry, shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in an event of war, join our enemies and fight against 
us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to what? To oppress them with forced labor. But remember, they're more numerous and they're more powerful. So how could they just set taskmasters over them and just allow it to happen? Something's missing. Let me keep going. They built cities of Pithid and Ramses for Pharaoh. Verse 12, but the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And this is important. The two most populous nations in the world are what? Are China and India. And they're also two of the most what? Oppressed. They're two of the poorest and two of the most oppressed. China's moving forward, but it's only a small population. It seems the more you oppress people, well, the more children they have. It was true then, and it is true now. Let me jump to verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, the other named Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? Now, there's no way I would have responded the way they respond. Okay, they have far more, well, courage than I do. Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get there. In other words, they're, they're saying what? Yeah, uh, by the way, we're better than you. They tell Pharaoh that. I couldn't imagine telling Pharaoh this to his face. Let me keep going. Let me jump to verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, comes up the second time, he gave them families. Now, let me jump to verse 2 real quick. I mean, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that the son was a fine baby, in other words, he was healthy, let me stop there. I'm going to jump to something real quick. These are the five women, Shipra, Pua, Moses, Miriam, and Pharaoh. I'm going to jump to something here, Sobek. Sobek is an important God to understand, okay? And I'll finish here soon. Sobek is important, okay? Sobek, this is Sobek. Sobek is an Egyptian god, ancient god of the crocodiles, worshipped until Roman period. Let me just tell you this. Sobek, okay, the Nile River thousands of years ago is filled with thousands of what? Crocodiles. What does Moses' mother do with baby Moses? She just puts him in the Nile. In a basket. In a Nile filled with what? Crocodiles. That's how desperate she was. What's fantastic, the Hebrew word used for Noah's ark is the exact same word used for Moses' basket. It's a little ark that's supposed to save him. Now, it's the last time I'm going to ask you to break up in your groups and talk. I'm going to give you about a minute and a half. What I want you to do, thank you, Bianca, what I want you to do is this. Place yourself in Moses' mother's shoes. You're desperate. Your boy's going to be killed soon. You have to save him. What steps do you take to increase the percentages that little Moses is going to be found safely in this basket by Pharaoh's daughter? Talk about that in your groups. We'll come back in about one minute, okay? Okay. 
Okay, let's come back together. Thank you, Bianca. Okay, let's come together. Any thoughts on this? Natalia, any thoughts? Hey, there it is. Make it waterproof. What else? What else? Yeah, Matt. Do what? That's good. Decorate it as an alligator. What else? What else do you do? You have to check Pharaoh's daughter's schedule. You have to check her schedule. Because apparently she wanted this particular daughter to find Moses. So she had to find out when does she bathe? Is it once a day, twice a day, three times a day? Is it three times a week? She had to schedule this in this way. This is what I mean. We can't just pray and hope for the best. We have to do what? We have to prepare. We have to plan also. We can't just allow God to do everything for us. We have to do some work, and you do amazing work here. That's really something else. Well, the other thing, and it says in the text, is that baby Moses was crying when the daughter found him. How do you make sure that he's crying so that he's heard in the reeds? Yeah, don't feed him. Uh, what is your name? Oh, what is your name? Tony. Tony. Or Tony. Uh, my suggestion was this. Um, Egypt was famous for having those, those scarabs there. Maybe get a scarab and clamp it on his chubby little thigh. And he'll cry the whole night long. Maybe for a week. Um, but he, I'm kidding, of course. But, but it's, it's important. What I'm saying again is that there are steps that we're supposed to take to help. God can't do it alone. God can't do it alone. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time. Um, I thank you again for regeneration. I thank you for the people here tonight, Lord. I pray that um, the words of my mouth, Lord, and your spirit, Lord, just move through us, uh, through your word uh, that has come to us from thousands and thousands of years ago. And Lord, somehow we can apply it to today. In your name we pray, amen.